Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the Classic Lenses podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting this podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Joining me today is Carl Havens in Gainesville, Florida. Hello, Carl. Good morning, Simon. And we have Johnny Sisson in Chicago, Illinois. Hello, Johnny. Hello from snowy Chicago yet again on podcast morning. So it's it got warm, it got colder, then it got warm and now it's got cold again. Yeah, it's been doing that pretty much every other day and then it snows. <laughs> so it was 50 degrees the other day and now it's back down to really cold and snowing so you need to live in florida man all for the fun no no we, we've discussed that carl i, I couldn't couldn't survive in florida well move, <laughs> moving on from moving on from the forecast uh last week we had james tocho uh, on the show uh, from casual photo file and uh <laughs> just like to uh, thank James for being a great guest and uh, also to say that this week we have another guest um, and we're doing something slightly different because he's in very close proximity to Carl in the sunshine in the sunshine state so uh, over to you Carl yeah sure <laughs> great um, so I'm real excited about this so um, our guest today is Anthony Rue uh, a member of our Facebook group and I met Anthony only about two months ago we have a little local camera club and we do photo walks and we stopped by his um, coffee shop and um, that was kind of cool because he sells Cosmo photo film there and um, started talking to Anthony and he brought out a couple of vintage cameras we were looking at them and got talking and um, he's not just a guy that owns a coffee shop and has some old cameras he's got a really long and very interesting history with film photography and uh way back into the maybe 80s or before and we're going to walk through that today and uh good morning anthony good morning we're we're really happy to have you here and uh sorry it didn't work out we were sitting at a table together with all these great cameras and we were echoing each other and so um i could i could probably like crank my neck around and see him (laughs) (laughs) twist a vertebrae or something so um let me just ask you some um, questions, kind of walk through your history with photography and sure. break it up so that um, if Johnny and, and Simon want to come in and, and ask some questions as we go along, we can have discussions. So maybe um, maybe start by uh, telling us how you got started in photography, maybe through the time when you were doing independent film and, and working as a photo scout, that, that part of your history. Sure. Or, or, well, or uh, earlier, if you want to start earlier. Yeah. Um, well, it's I came from a family of photo nerds. Uh, My grandfather had been a passionate amateur photographer, and my father was also uh, someone who always had a camera in his hands. And as a matter of fact, uh, he bought a a Kodak Retina Reflex 3 just to be able to take baby pictures of me. And uh, it turns out that was the first camera that I ever used because he gave it to me when I was a a very young teenager to to learn photography. Uh, So that was in the probably the early 70s uh, and by the by the late 70s I was dragging it around to uh, punk rock shows taking pictures of Blondie and the Ramones and Devo with this uh, with this old retina reflex and uh, when it came time to go to college I was one of these kids that was like the birth of MTV and I thought I want to make music videos and so I got a degree in telecommunications although I ended up focusing more on uh field news gathering. And so my early work was mostly in uh, like studio and and field uh, video cameras and also uh, did a lot of 16 millimeter work. Uh, So I, you know, learned how to edit on a Steenbeck uh, flatbed editor 
and uh, spent most of my you know, early 20s working in the film industry for the most part. Um, so I would uh, work as a second unit cinematographer, meaning a director would give me a list of shots, like, you know, not working with any of the actors. I was always out with a very small crew, uh, given directions like, you know, find uh, a warehouse that the character would have the reverse shot of looking at the warehouse and then the shot, the warehouse would be mine. Uh, and that sort of morphed into me actually becoming a uh, location scout, which was the first job that I ever had that I made my living with a still camera. And uh, I bought a, a Nikon FM2, uh, 1983-84, was right when they first came out. And uh, it was one of these gigs where I was based out of Atlanta, and I would just drive around the South with lists of locations that directors were interested in. And uh, so I, I learned to shoot photography through a cinematographer's eye, where it was, how do you frame a shot uh, that would look good on this on the screen? Um, although I'm just taking still photography and it's still one of my favorite jobs that I ever had. That's great. That's cool. And so, I mean, not long after that, you were involved in the Atlanta <laughs> film festival, right? You directed it. Well, I mean, how, yeah. did, how did that happen? <laughs> no, I was doing all the, I was, I was working through a, uh, uh, at the time in the in the 80s, uh, there was a fair amount of uh, National Endowment of the Arts money for, for various types of art centers. And there was one in Atlanta called Image, uh, which promoted uh, independent filmmaking. And so I was like teaching workshops on, on how to shoot film and how to edit. Uh, I also did uh, workshops on sound, sound recording. So I, you know, teaching people how to work with boom mics and Nagras. Um, and through meeting all the directors and all of the people passing through the South at the time, there was a lot of independent film being uh, produced in Atlanta. Got to work with some amazing directors and uh, sort of fell into the role as the film director for the Atlanta Film and Video uh, Festival, which meant, you know, I solicited uh, uh, submissions from all over the world and we'd bring in uh, different people from the film community, directors and, and uh People, the critics, and the brought in the uh, uh, one of the directors of the Whitney Art Museum, and we would sit through you know, three to five hundred films and different categories, select all the winners, and then have the Atlanta Film Festival. Uh, and that was a it was a pretty heady time to be involved in all of that. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And then. Um... You, and now you, you have a you have a, an interesting educational history with photography with a master's degree and then working on a PhD. Um, maybe you could talk about like how what impact did that have on you as a photographer? Sure. Well, um, right around 1987, 88, uh, you know, there were a couple of uh, controversies in the photography world. You know, there was. Uh, uh, Serrano's uh, phot photograph, Piss Christ, and there's Robert Mapplethorpe's uh, photography, and uh, various uh, senators like Jesse Helms uh, got kind of caught up in uh, trying to ban the uh, NEA and zero fund a lot of projects. And so the group that I was with, uh, we lost a lot of our funding, and I ended up going back to graduate school. I ended up in a program at Indiana University in comparative literature. Um, but it was more than studying literature is all about visual, uh, the visual arts and visual rhetoric, mostly fo focusing on film, documentary film and photography. Uh, so I was just like a super nerd 
semiotician looking at the history of photography and uh, ended up in 1989 writing a master's thesis about uh, what would happen with the, the, the coming wave of digital photography and how that would impact our interpretation of photography. Uh, so I spent a lot of time in museums, a lot of time uh, you know, studying the history of photography. And uh, the fascinating bit was that you know, in the history of photography, you know, it's so commonplace now that we look at an image and think that it has some sort of, of you know, direct relationship to reality. You know, the, we were conditioned by photojournalism, uh, by just the way that we use images to believe images. But in the early days of photography, in the 1800s, you know, photography was a very different thing. And there were spirit photographers and, you know, it a, it, it, people manipulated photography very heavily. And uh, there was even a point where in the British courts, they did not allow photogra photographs to be used as evidence. Uh, they just didn't trust them. They trusted eyewitness accounts more than they trusted photography. And so there's this period where, you know, even in the court system, there was this this fight to figure out, uh, you know, do photographs have a, you know, a direct relationship to reality? And, uh, and then, you know, that was settled in photography's favor, obviously. Um, and then, uh, you know, what I saw was coming in, in, in digital photography, that was the year that um, the National Geographic got busted for using uh, an early version of Photoshop to move the uh, Great Pyramids to line up for a shot on the cover of National Geographic. And there was a bit of an uproar in the photography community because, like, what did this mean when suddenly, you know, a photograph was so mutable, so changeable? Uh, and was that going to change the way that we related to images? So that was the bulk of my like academic work. That's great. That's real cool. Um, so you talked to Simon and I earlier in the week, well, last week now, and um, there was an experience that happened that kind of got you out of photography for a while. And then, and then after a few years, your passion was reignited. Do, do you want to um, tell us about that story? Sure. I mean, it was, you know, so obviously I was writing about photography and, and I was, you know, obsessively photographing. And, and at the time I was, I was shooting at my, I still had my Nikon FM2. Uh, I had a series of, of Olympus um, XAs. Uh, I was shooting, oh gosh, an Olympus, a couple of the older Olympus rangefinders. And um, I had uh, been part of a grant to photograph the, uh, uh, the collapse of the uh, Eastern European countries uh, in 1990, in 89 and 90, and spent the year uh, traveling around Eastern Europe and photographing, uh, and then ended up at University of Florida to do my PhD, and, and actually spent most of my time teaching, writing about photography, uh, and it had been you know, digitizing my work and, and uh, uh, collecting more cameras, collected cameras while I was in Eastern Europe. And uh, uh, then I was the uh, unfortunate uh, victim of a home invasion robbery that um, I lost everything. I lost all of my computers, all my laptops, the backups of backups of backup drives that I had. I lost uh, probably 30 cameras. Uh, at the time, I was also doing professional work, uh, doing underwater cinematography and underwater photography, and I lost all my... Uh, my Nikon professional digital gear. I lost about $30,000 worth of lenses 
And uh, I kind of just stepped away from photography for, uh, you know, a good seven or eight years. Uh, I just, I just couldn't do it. I just, I just couldn't face it. Uh, I um, picked up a couple of micro four thirds cameras just for travel and picked up uh, uh, a K10D, uh, is it, is the, what was it? K10D is the early uh, Pentax uh, DSLR that took the old uh, K-mount lenses. Um, but I was not, you know, I just didn't care about it. And then this last year, in the very early February of, of 2018, I was in Berlin and uh, sort of stumbled into uh, Photo Infix, didn't even know that it existed. Uh, then around the corner from there is a place called Click und Sur, and they are a lovely shop that uh, restores cameras that they had found throughout Eastern Europe. And I ended up with a, uh, a Voigtlander Vito C and, uh, and a Minox. And I'd always wanted a Minox sub-miniature. And it just like opened the floodgates. And, uh, you know, all of the, the passion for photography just came crashing back in much to the detriment of my bank account. <laughs> That's great. So, so um, I'm, I'm going to ask you two more things and then open, and then open up. We can have, a, I think there's a lot of stuff to discuss. So um, you've got this really cool cafe now called the Volta uh, here in Gainesville. And um, you're doing things to integrate film with your cafe. I mean, you're selling film, but you're teaching some, some uh, workshops and things. Can, can you tell us just a little bit about that and what you're doing? Sure. Um, well, the cafe, the cafe, we started it about 11 years ago, and it was an attempt to create sort of a cultural, artistic uh, space in Gainesville. Uh, so, you know, it had always been you know, partially designed as a gallery space in addition to being a cafe. And so we'd been promoting local photographers and painters and graphic artists as well. Um, but then this last year, uh, we lost our only camera store in Gainesville uh, about this time last year. And so there's, there's literally no place to buy film in the city of Gainesville right now, or there hadn't been. And uh, the closest place was uh, Colonial down in, in Orlando. And uh, uh, I contacted Stephen Dowling over at Cosmo and uh, uh, he was like, yeah, sure. I'll, open you up as a dealer, what the heck, you know, get the film out to the people. And, you know, we, as, as a gathering place, we'd already seen uh, photographers from the university of Florida and from Santa Fe college and from the local high schools. They, you know, they'd been our customers because, you know, they you know, were kind of the place that attracts that kind of a crowd. And, uh, you know, we really haven't even promoted the film that much. And, uh, you know, we saw about oh, maybe, uh, you know, a hundred rolls of film uh, a month, uh, which isn't, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to uh, replace espresso on the menu. Uh, but the people are certainly appreciative of being able to, uh, uh, to find film again in Gainesville and to sort of promote that. I've been teaching classes, um, teaching a, a monthly class on caffeinol, uh, caffeinol development. And uh, we just did one uh, two weeks ago and we'll be doing one again next month. And uh, people, people love it. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's interesting to see the relationship that the, uh, the younger students have to film cameras. You know, there's, there's not, uh, no questioning that there's value to it and that they're interested in it. 
That's great. That's great. So I'm I'm going to ask one last thing, and then and then I'm just going to open it up. So Johnny, if you were sitting in the room that I'm in, you would be drooling because <laughs> everywhere you look, there's a, a, a amazing old beautiful vintage camera in perfect condition being used to take pictures and um, it's just and on the table that i'm sitting at there's a, a voigtlander Vito b there's a voigtlander promenade there's a, a voigtlander besomatic there's a context rangefinder there's an exact barracks with a uh, a biotar on it um and oh, Anthony lets you touch oh, these things. Oh, and, oh, and, 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 there's, and there's a proper Petri here. He used the seven, but I brought him a I brought him a real one. And oh, hey, last night. This is interesting. So another way to fix a Petri, just let it sit for a while and don't do anything with it. And then it starts working again. So, so, so I, I had one that was a brick and two that worked. And last night I picked up the one that was bricked and it worked perfectly fine. Oh, the, the, hey. the seven. So I, all three of mine work. But anyway, I brought him one of the... Um, one of the, the the kind that you like the the older one. It's not a one point nine. It's a two point eight, but yeah. it's a it's a pretty nice, substantial little camera. So he has that. And um, but anyway, um, what I was going to ask you is, are there are there maybe two or three of your cameras that are just your absolute favorites, that the ones that you like to use the best? You know, I, you know, I've got a, a Leica M three, and you know, I've got the contacts two and the three, and they're all in beautiful shape, and and you know, I appreciate them. But for some reason, I'm just totally enamored with the old Voigtlander cameras. I think it was because the Vito C and the B were, you know, and the and the Vito three were the first three uh, film cameras that I I bought this last year. And you know, there's something about the way those cameras feel, the way they look. You know, working up through it, uh, you know, the Vitessa is the camera that I'm just. It's just like such a quirky, fun, weird camera. Uh, it's the one with the, the, the barn doors, the swing open, and it's got the Ultron uh, 2.0 lens. Um, and it's just everything about it is like you have to rethink how to take photographs of that camera. But once you sort of retrained your, your fingers and your mind to get yourself, you know, to wrap yourself around how you use it, uh, it's an incredibly, it's like one of those technological dead ends that could have been great, but you know, sort of like, you know, push button transmissions on old cars and, you know, people were trying new things and, and I appreciate the spirit of design in it uh, as much as anything, but it helps that it takes, you know, absolutely stunningly beautiful photographs. Uh, that and the, uh, and the Bessomatic uh, Deluxe are just, you know, the, the two that when I wanted to just have fun, those are the cameras that I go to. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So you guys, you have to have some questions now, right? <laughs> well, uh, pl plenty. I mean, what, yeah. what, I, what I'd like to do, actually, is go go back to um, uh, the education days. Um, sure. I'm just I'm particularly interested in the, you know, you, the, the thesis that you did about the uh, the the oncoming wave of uh, digital cameras, uh, which you obviously wrote. Yeah, that, yeah, that, I was, that, I was kind of kind of ahead days. of the curve on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm 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 curious to, to know what um what 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 did you get right? What did you get wrong? And um yeah, what's what's your well what's your overall view of of how how things have changed from the point of view that you took it you you took a very in depth view of uh, the way the industry was moving. Well, I mean, I, I think that what I got right was my sort of one of my thesis was is that it wasn't so much the camera that it was going to be the software that 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 changed our perception of photography, and you know, there, there's, there's, you know, photography or Photoshop is such an incredibly powerful tool. And in a way, 
you know, if you're a digital photographer, you know, paying the money to learn how to master Photoshop is more important than dumping money into the latest Nikon Z body. Uh, because where the real meaning is made is, is, is in the post-processing. Um, and I don't think that that's acknowledged so much in the camera circles as, as how powerful and how, how much we all rely on, on, on applications like Photoshop to, to really, you know, create the final image. Um, and that was in, in, you now, now you've got like, I don't know if you saw the, the, uh, AI assisted, um, like 3d renderings of, of faces to replace stock photography. I mean, I think that we're, we're exactly where I thought, you know, I was kind of afraid that we'd be where we're, we're hitting a point now where, where, you know, does photography actually have that same sort of, of relation to, to the world? And it, it just doesn't, you know, when I watch, uh, you know, a Tony Northrup podcast on, on YouTube where he's doing these, you know, high def collages of, you know, 30 images to make one panorama uh, or your, you know, the, the software has, has sort of outstripped our ability to, 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 uh, to relate to the scene, the way that let's say, you know, you know, like, you know Cartier Brisson and the Magnum photographers, the way that they viewed the world uh, that doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah. You, um, you mentioned, yeah. That's one of the things I really want to talk to you about um, <laughs> <laughs> among the many. Um, but you, a, a couple things came to mind. I, there's a book, um, I, we could put it in the podcast notes called after photography uh, by Fred Richin, where he, he, he talks about a lot of the same um, territory as far as, um, you know, photography has always been a very mutable thing, but digital changes it sort of entirely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I think that's a, a, a fascinating area to talk about. And, and one that, I mean, I think the best example of that is um, just how I think we've become unable to separate the um, image from reality and that a photograph is not the object in the photograph. It's something entirely yeah. different. And I, I think it's even more difficult with digital because it looks uh, kind of so hyper-realistic um, in some regards in a way that the film doesn't film to me looks like a really a translation from reality. And I think digital, it just looks like you're standing there looking at the thing. And I think mm -hmm. that that kind of makes, makes it worse because it's still photography, which means it's a two dimensional, you know, representation of a moment in time. And it's, that's very different than the real, you know, than reality. So, um, I think that's a very interesting topic, and I think it we 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 sort of just take for granted that images are the thing being pictured. Um, right. So yeah. So well, I, that, I mean, we could probably do an entire podcast just on that. But I I find that coming up a a lot in terms of critique of images that happen. Um, you know, in places like the Classic Lenses Facebook group, there were a couple of interesting images this week that were a bit controversial that I think directly spoke to that issue of, all right, we're talking about the content in the photograph and not the fact mm -hmm. that it, that it is a photograph, which are right. two different conversations. So. Right. And, and, you know, also think that, that, that in the history of photography, there's always been a given play between, you know, developments in cinematography and developments in, in, in still photography. You know, you go back and you look at like, you know, the, the, you know, the, 1930s and the, the, the use of, of, of shorter lenses and, and, and increased depth of field 
uh, in films like, you know, Citizen Kane and uh, the way that that sort of spills out into what uh, news photography would look like. Well, now you look at cinematography and it's just dominated by the digital effect, uh, by the fact that they're creating entire worlds. They're compositing, they're, they're, you know, they're rendering and compositing. Um, and, and this is, you know, and, and we accept this in, in, in narrative film and in, in fiction film. Um, but I, it's inevitable that that's going to bleed over into all aspects of photography, whether it's documentary or, or still photography. Uh, and it's going to just, it's just going to fundamentally shake, you know, like I said, there's the, the, one of the, the key books that I had in my, in my master's work. And I got to remember this is, you know, 1989, uh, was a, a British Marxist historian named John Tagg who has a book called the burden of representation. And that's where you really got the information about the way that the, you know, the fight to use photography in, in the British court system. Um, and you, know, you think back to what photography had been. And like I said, there's a, you know, there's a, a bunch of research into this, like uh, people like Michael Lessie had written a book about uh, uh, industrial uh, photography in the 1920s, uh, where people would pay to have these photograph negatives completely retouched by hand. Uh, to get rid of, like to take pictures of factories, to make them not look dirty, to completely clean them up and create you know, a spotless working environment that they could promote when in fact it was like, you know, some industrial uh, hellscape that people were working in. Um, you know, so, so there's always been that sort of manipulation of photography, uh, whether you wanted to acknowledge it or not. Uh, losing my train it, of thought. It's interesting because um, this conversation takes me back to the, to the talk we had a couple of podcasts ago about um, cinematography and and the trend towards introducing imperfections now into um, oh, yeah. into films and and said so I'm really bad now. We were Pam and I were watching a movie last night and it's one that we <laughs> we watched about three times. But I I, don't, I hate watching the I won't watch the new, I don't watch the news anymore. So um, we rewatch movies that we like. And so in this movie, since I've seen it before, I'm thinking, oh. The, the, the bokeh and those windows behind them is really cool the way they did that and oh you know they're, they're using a really soft lens in this particular picture and oh that's cool the way that flare is happening in there <laughs> and I don't say it anymore because I've learned that if I say it it's not, it's not, a, good, it's not a good thing in our house but um but I don't think that's bleeding over from film photography that's that's bleeding over from people um seeing what you can do maybe with um older lenses on digital cameras or something. I'm not sure how that's happening. You know, another thing that, that, you know, has really struck me since I've started shooting sort of obsessively with film cameras again, um, as somebody who's a, is a uh, you know, historian of photography, you know, I look back and, and, and like, I'll, I'm, just, I'm such a photo nerd. I'll go to any museum uh, and go to any exhibit that I can. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd been a person who had always shot with a, you know, the, the Nikon FM2 had just been like an extension of myself. I, I'd always shot with that camera. I'm very comfortable with it. And uh, hadn't really thought about the fact that, that, that with you know, some of these older cameras, uh, you know, it's to me, it's like being a musician and being able to perform, uh, you know, a, 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 a piece by Bach with, with period instruments. It's just going to sound different. They're going to perform differently. And so for a lot of, you know, what I've been doing with you know, buying these older cameras is, is just rethinking what photography meant at different periods. Uh, you know, how you had to uh, just completely reconceptualize uh, how you take photography and why 
the photographs from those periods look like they do. And, and that's it's really a fascinating way to, uh, to, to approach this. Uh, yeah, that's a good, that's a good one. Um, uh, it, we occasionally hear the, I occasionally feel like I've seen the comment where people say cameras don't matter and, it's really not true. Oh, camera, camera's absolutely <laughs> yeah. matter. I mean, I, I know it's just the box that holds the lens, which makes the image, but it, it does matter because what you, what you just said, <clears throat> the technology itself, as far as how you go about that, it functions differently. So, absolutely. It, you know, I think it has a really, it really kind of has a huge effect. You know, since I've been, you know, shooting with these contacts, I've been doing a lot of you know, research back into how they've, how they've historically been used. And uh, during the, the WPA, during the, uh, uh, the FSA period where, you know, Dorothea Lange and, and Walker Evans and, and all were out photographing uh, the American Depression, uh, they pretty much all used contacts, either twos or threes, um, except for Lange, who refused to use because she would only use either a, uh, uh, a speed graphic or a rolly, you know, rolly, rolly flex. And uh, she, she kind of was like adamant about the fact that, that, that for her to shoot, she had to have those cameras and her photos, you know, they don't look like, you know, the yeah. other photos from, from the project at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, and I think back to, you know, in, you know, cause I've had all these odd jobs in photography through the years and, you know, you, you know, the people in the, in the 1980s when I was shooting, you know, the people that had, Hasselblads were portrait photographers, fashion photographers, and wedding photographers, you know, and you just didn't see them outside of those very specialized yeah. applications. Um, you know, and, and it's just kind of interesting to see how our relation to those sorts of cameras have changed over the years. Um, mm. and, and I got to admit that until this year, I'd never held Leica, you know, I mean, this is going to sound horrible, but but Leicas were cameras for dentists back in the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that. Uh, some of the best, some of our best uh, Leica customers at the shop are doctors and dentists and .edu people like Carl. Absolutely, Carl, Carl, Carl should have one. <laughs> but it's kind of true. Yeah, it really is. But you know, like I've got a, I've got a 500 cm sitting here, like three feet away from me, that that one of my friends has loaned me for over a year now, and I think I've taken it out twice. I just do not get along with that camera. I can't force myself to think about the way that camera works. <laughs> yeah, the uh, Hasselblad's are really interesting as location camera, like non-studio cameras. You know, yeah. I mean, they they because uh, I that I mean that's was my first introduction to Hasselblad's. Also, as I was a photo assistant in the late eighties, early nineties, and I, all the all the serious, you know, the real commercial people shot Hasselblad's because the art directors kind of expected to see Hasselblad's. And they, then they knew they hired a real photographer, um, but they. You know, it's to me. I've always thought it's not the it's not the most. Uh, they're a little bit awkward for just kind of general photography carry around use. You know, mm -hmm. which is why I get why I ended up uh, when I first got in a medium format. I got a Rolleiflex, and that was I was kind of trying to choose between a Rolleiflex and a Hasselblad, and mm -hmm. I, it's how I ended up with the Rolleiflex because it seemed a little bit more um, user friendly for 
just kind of walking around photography, um, you know, not in terms of it, not needing a, a system camera, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're, they're great for that use. I just, I feel like the shape of them is, is not as um, enjoyable to use if you're just kind of walking around. No, absolutely. I mean, I think it, I've never been a person that uses a flash or, I mean, we can talk about this a little bit, but uh, you know, other than underwater photography, I'm, I'm not a, a, an advocate of, of lighting. Uh, and, and the Hasselblad just seems like it just screams for like fixed studio lighting and, yeah. and a tripod. Yeah. Right. <laughs> see, right. See, see, the thing is I've, I've, I've got a, a 500 CM and I'm, I mean, I'm, yeah, you know, the things I'm hearing now uh, from from the two of you, you know, I've I've I hear them quite quite often, and, uh, and I wasn't sure if I was actually going to get on with it with a Hasselblad or not. And it, initially, I didn't. Um, I was thinking it was just a bit clunky and it was just a bit strange and 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 so on. Um, but then I'd, I just forced myself to go out on a walk with it, um, and I think I've, I've also I've got a prison finder for it as well as the uh, the waist level finder, and uh, I just I fell in love with it. Um, to for landscape use, which is seems like a quite a an odd thing to do with a square format camera, but it it's I think whenever you're trying to take a photograph, you I think you're trying to actually take something that that you, you're not necessarily trying to represent what's in front of you. You're representing what it means to you, perhaps, and or it, you want it to be different in some way. And I think when you're looking through a, a square viewfinder um, at a landscape scene, it makes you think differently in terms of composition and um oh, yeah I th- i've certainly said it before i think uh, i mean i'm a i'm a slave to the rule of thirds uh, mm-hmm. with my my photography generally speaking um whereas that sort of goes out the window when you're playing with a square format so i feel like i'm i'm released and able to do other other things with my photography simply because of the the, the shape of uh, of the format there I mean, I, I love shooting six by six. I mean, I've got a, I've actually got a Czech uh, Flexoret, uh, Flexoret uh, four, no six. Um, that you know, it's it's like a really knockoff from the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia. And you know, I love shooting. And, and the medalists, man, I am absolutely enamored with shooting with these Kodak medalists. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've got a I've I've got one uh, recently. It's it's currently being served at the moment, and I'm I'm really looking forward to going out with that lump of of a lead camera that that, that it is. Um, it's just just amazes me. Just uh, I mean, it looks heavy, and then you pick it up, and it's even heavier. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> Cheyenne Morrison sent me the uh, the cover from a 1940s comic book of a uh, of a. Uh, of a woman as a whack with a medalist knocking out a, a Nazi. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, totally, totally possible. Totally within the realm of possibility. <laughs> I, I thought you, I thought you were going to say that it was like some comic strip, but when somebody gains superpowers, they were able to pick it up. No, no, no. She's she's swinging it and doing a, yeah. just like a knockout punch on a Nazi with her with her medalist. Yeah, it's it's, it's great. <laughs> so while you so while you guys are talking, um, I have a really long cord on my microphone, so I'm walking around here. I haven't broken anything, but I'm, I'm looking at I'm looking at some of your cameras, and you have you have a number of really cool auto auto top core lenses that look like they're brand new lenses. And uh, but there's this one camera that I found that I've never heard of or seen before. It looks like a brand new camera, and it's a Minolta Super A. I love that camera, and, and it has a Chioda Kogaku Super Rokor 51.8 lens on it. And it looks like 
I mean, it's it's a cool camera. It's a cool camera. I've never. That's there's the funniest. That was that was a uh, that was a that was a steal. That was a, a local uh, Craigslist ad uh, wow. from some guy that was selling uh, three cameras for thirty five dollars. Whoa! And it was uh, one of the Polaroid uh, land cameras and an Aries Viscount and that. And it was a guy who, I guess he was maybe in his 70s, and it had been his wife's uh, father's camera. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's an odd tangential story behind it that it, as we started talking, we realized that um, his, his wife's father had been in World War II and had been a, uh, um, a colonel in the same uh, division as my grandfather when he was a colonel in World War II. And they were both in the Battle of the Bulge together. Um, now, my, I, I told the story to Carl earlier. My grandfather had been this, like, passionate uh, amateur photographer. And uh, he, um, he, he had, I've got his photo albums. And he, I think he was shooting a, a like, whatever the, the Bakelite Kodak TLR was in the 1940s. Hmm. Uh, and I've got his photos of just, like, life behind the scenes at the Battle of the Bulge uh, from Beston. Uh, to all the way to Munich, uh, he was a, a colonel in charge of like 155 millimeter howitzers. And uh, wow. um, when he gets to Munich, he's asked by a general uh, to be one of the uh, photographers to document the liberation of Dachau. Wow, my gosh! And so I've got all these photographs that he took, and, and I mean, he's just—he was a stonecutter from rural Indiana, you know, who just loved playing with his. Uh, uh, with his camera and taking these pictures. And then all of a sudden he takes, you know, with this very humble camera, some of the most historically important photos of the 20th century. Um, and it turns out, of course, that the guy that I'm buying the Super A from was like probably knew my grand, uh, my grandfather. And uh, they'd actually were from about 50 miles apart in Indiana. Uh, so I think it's impossible that they didn't know each other. And uh, after the war, uh, the person I bought the Super A from, the, 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 the father-in-law, had uh, stayed in Germany as a general in charge of one of the army bases in, in, in Germany. And he bought this Super A uh, to take pictures while he traveled back and forth between Germany and Japan. And I don't think that anybody had taken a picture with it. And I mean, it had a, it had a role of film in it that was like a roll of, of Kodak uh, Kodachrome that looked like it was dated from maybe the 1970s from the, from the packaging. Mm. Uh, and uh, it just roared to life. And that camera, it's like a, you know, it's like a, it's almost like a more refined version of an M3. You know, it's a beautiful camera to shoot. And that lens is, is just, it's one of my favorites. I was just like, I'm just shocked at how beautiful you talk about rendering shooting that camera on that, that lens on that body the photos that I get off of that camera, just, they always surprise me. Uh, so Voigtlander cameras. Um, yes. Yeah. It's cool. I love that you're a Voigtlander camera fan. They're, they're so, um, they're just so different. <laughs> it's like, they it, they're just so weirdly different. And sometimes I feel like they really flop and sometimes they're really great, but they, I, but they're I, different. They're always different. I mean, they, they just, um, it, it it's like the Voigtlander stuff. It, it's it's just unusual usually, and sometimes a really really great unusual. And the lenses on those things, by and large, are truly excellent. 
Let, so, let me uh, let me praise yeah. the, the, the the color scopar, which I assume is a variant of a Tessar lens. Uh, it is indeed. Yeah. The, you know, to me, that that lens is it's kind of like the uh, the Toyota pickup truck of the uh, of the lens <laughs> world. You know, it's fairly common, and there's nothing sexy about it. But my God, those those lenses produce. You know, for you know, sixty-year-old, seventy-year-old camera, they produce beautiful results. Uh, for and, and these are fixed-lens cameras, you know, so they're not you know you have to be swapping anything out on them. Uh, yeah. But but for what you got, I mean, you know, th those cameras are, are are so undervalued for the quality of work that they can produce. You know, I just I just I love all that whole the whole Vito line, uh, all the way up to the Vitessa T. Yeah. Uh, I'm just totally enamored with all of them. I actually, I'm just, I'm waiting on a, uh, a Vitomatic 2A to come back from a CLA. And I think I paid four times the cost that I paid for the camera to get the CLA done. Because uh, yeah. I, <laughs> I want it to be a camera that I can reliably shoot all wow. the time. Because I really just, that, that camera is such a joy to work with. You know, so right, again, it's that, that size to weight combination for a compact camera. And I love compact, I love miniature cameras. I mean, I love shooting my Minox. You know, I've actually now I've got I've got a, a working C and a B and an MX, and uh, I just uh, you know I shot I bought the, the last film camera that I bought was a, a, a 35 and a Minox 35 GTE that I bought new in oof, maybe 93, and used it up until last year I was in Iceland and didn't realize it was like 10 degrees below zero. And I sheared the winding mechanism right off the camera, mm. trying to advance it. Oh wow! <laughs> uh, they weren't really designed for sub-zero weather. I found out, um, you know. But I love, uh, you know, the, 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 even the XAs. You know, I, I bought the, I think three of those new, and I'd use them for about a year and a half, and then they die. Uh, and this is like back in the eighties. Uh, you know, they, they, they were, at least the ones that I had weren't terribly reliable. But I, I, I loved carrying them and shooting them, and so. You know, the the Vito Bs, I think that's the the progenitor of that style of, of like super compact mm. carryable camera. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, quite possibly. I mean, the the guy who designed the XA, um, you know, Maitani, he was certainly influenced by um, a lot of the iconic German camera designs. Mm -hmm. So I I would not be surprised if there is some shared DNA there for sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought of that. That's, that's, that's very true. Yeah. But that's good. I, I like those little, I like those little cameras. And so Andy has them. So I have a collection of old cameras that sit out and, and uh, on top of a cabinet where I keep my, my lenses. And um, so a Andrew's collected a set of um, point and shoots that we've picked up over time because the price is really low on them. And so we have, a, we don't have an XA. He has an XA we won two XA1s and an XA2. The XA1 is really cool because it has the selenium meter ring on the front of it. Um, but they shoot really well. But um, I think for the same reason, I always have my um, pen EES in my camera bag and uh, or, in my, or, in my, or in my pocket if it'll fit in my pocket. <laughs> and um, Because I can just pull it out and just take pictures with it and it's got 72 shots on it. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's just a fun thing to have along. As a second, I usually have it as a backup camera. Oh, I, I forgot. I have to blame Johnny for my my Konica Auto Reflex purchase last month. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to tell the story about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, you know, I mentioned that I had been in, in Eastern Europe shooting in, in, in 1990, 
And I would just buy cameras wherever I went, whenever I saw an old, you know, whether it was in Czechoslovakia or when there was still in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, in, uh, in East Germany. Uh, and I had, uh, is it Agat? The, the Agat 18K? Um, oh, yeah. Oh, I've always shot, wanted one of those. <laughs> I, I shot, that's one of the cameras I lost in the robbery. Uh, ah. I, shot with, I shot with one of those all across Czechoslovakia. I got wow. like, crazy photographs. It's a, it a quirky, fun little camera. Um, so I, I, you know, I've, since then, I've always loved half-frame cameras. I've got a Pin F with a full set of lenses. That is, I love that camera. I've got the, the Russian Seagull, and I've got a, a Fed 2. Um, but that the, the Konica, when I saw your photos on Instagram, I was just blown away by that. Because I've never shot Konica in my life. Yeah, you know, and and you yeah. found that set on eBay and, and and dangled it in front of me on the on the, the Facebook group, <laughs> uh, and and even though I really couldn't budget at the time, man, I could not pass that up. I'm so glad it is such a cool camera. Talk yeah, about a beast, that I, thing is so heavy. I know, I know, it's I, I it is it is truly. Sh- I mean, it's like it's like knicker mat heavy. It I was really I was really surprised when I got it. Um, it's my is my first Konica as well, and I, I'm used to seeing usually not working those you know later auto reflex TC three cameras. Which I mean, I, when they work, they're really great, but they don't work a lot of the time. Right. Um, so I used to used to handling those, and this thing is compl- oh my god, it's completely totally different. It, it's such a rock solid camera, um, and. It, it's just such a unique design that you can flip from full to half frame, you know, on the fly. I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around it because I have a photo project. I want to do mixing full and a half frame frames right. together as a single frame. Um, Except for it gives you it gives you an odd spacing on the negative when you because you've got the you've got a very specific sequence that you have to use when you flip it back. And exactly, forth and that, yeah, and that's what I, yeah, that's what I'm trying to wrap my head around is to avoid the gap or to actually I should say to use the gap as part of the way the image should work. Yeah. Um, uh, oh boy. That's I, now I just have an idea for <laughs> my photo project just changed. Thank you for saying that. Um, sure. <laughs> but yeah, it's the auto reflex ridge that auto reflex original camera is, is really something else. I mean, it's, it's gone on probably my top 10 list for like just uh, well-designed and made uh, cameras period. It, it's, I, I'm just thoroughly impressed by it. So it's, it's a lot of fun to use. And, um, Konica lenses are really, really pretty excellent. Um, yeah. you know, that came, and, came with three lenses. It has the, uh, it has the 35, it has the fast 50, and then it has the special, uh, half frame zoom that was designed just ah, for using with the half frame. That's cool. Yeah. Carl, it's there on the turntable, uh, sort of behind you. I still can't believe you let Carl loose. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, well, well, Carl's actually muted at the moment. Either that, yeah, or he's Carl, actually run off with the rest of your stuff. Okay. No, I have I have the camera in my hand, and I was going to make a pre- I was going to make a pretend dropping noise. But oh not. man! Just drop the book. What? Oops. No, 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 that was where my keys. <laughs> oh, it looks cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Wow. But, you know, it's kind of funny because, you know, the whole idea of the half frame is making a smaller camera. 
Yeah, I know. Well, it's not a smaller camera. No, it's not. It's no, not at all. It reminds me of the new uh, Canon and Nikon mirrorless cameras. It's like, what the are you guys thinking? It's not as small. But but also, I mean, I think the interesting thing about half frame to me, especially thinking about the Pen FT, is that the lenses um, have incredible resolving power because they they actually have to be they have to resolve more detail because you have a smaller piece of film, which might sound counterintuitive, but it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sort of the way, I mean, medium and large format lenses, you can't really put them on smaller formats because they weren't intended to resolve as much because they rely on the bigger, you know, film area. But those, those lenses are, there's something about the look of half frame that I, I find really, really different because um, the lenses do seem to resolve differently. And it's hard to it's hard to exactly quantify that if it's a, a sharpness thing or what it is, um, but half frame has a really particular look. Um, and I mean, even yeah, and it, even the way like uh, the lens that I really like on the auto reflex is that um, to me it's just perfect. Is that forty millimeter one point eight lens? Um, I don't have that one. Uh, did I say that right? The forty one eight, right? Yeah, um, I think so. yeah, yeah. That's yeah, right. it, yeah. So and it's interesting on the the the. Uh, auto reflex because you know the angle of view on half frame is like about 60 millimeters but on full frame it's 40 so you get this really interesting thing where it goes from being a slightly wide normal to a slightly tele tele telephoto normal you know right um and i and i just find i i just find that really uh fascinating to work with um as a like a one lens on that camera um, and it's also, it's, you know, it's relatively light and compact, so it just makes the camera, right. you know, handle a little bit differently. So yes, high, when we high had, praise um, for that one. Remember when we had Am on as a guest and I was talking about shooting the pen and the photos were okay, but they weren't, you know, and he's like, what kind of film are you using? And I said, well, yeah. film a pen, film a film a pen 200. <laughs> well, you're using a totally wrong film for a half frame camera. Yeah. That makes and, a difference uh, too. Yeah. So it does. I've been using XP two and the pictures are beautiful. Yeah. 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 And, 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 you know, again, because my background is in film and I come back to the, to, to when I worked in 16 millimeter and like some of those Bolex lenses where this, they, they had that same sort of character to me. Oh is, yeah. Cause you know, 16 millimeter, that's like, you know, quarter frame. <laughs> yeah right but but they were still designed for you know cinema projection in the cinema mm-hmm. uh, you know so they had to have that ability to, to to get a lot of detail in those smaller frames right right and that was another thing that you mentioned it sort of at the opening there um is the connection between photography and cinematography and sure. I, yeah and i know that i mean for me personally i feel like i've always drawn more kind of inspiration visually from uh, cinematography than mm-hmm. still photography in a lot of ways, um, which again is maybe counterintuitive. But it's something about the about the framing um, is quite a bit different, uh, and I, I think that's why I enjoy uh, the panorama format so much. I, is it's uh, it's is, essentially I, I, working in widescreen. <laughs> so. I absolutely love framing and panorama, and that's yeah. It's kind of like my white whale is coming up with a good workable panorama. Maybe not a Hasselblad, but a right. like, workable panoramic camera because uh, you know those 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 widescreen cinematographers they just absolutely you know seared into my brain you know like what is good composition and, and yeah. use of that frame and 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 the, and the way that the frame becomes very narrative uh, absolutely yeah it's totally yeah that, that just just 
you know, it totally changes the way you think about framing things up and what, and what your composition is. Yeah. And, and, and that's, um, I mean, I, one of the cameras I use that gets, um, it, it's funny. I feel like I gets both praise and derision is my little, um, my Minolta, uh, my Minolta Panorama camera, which, um, you know, it, you, the viewfinder is in, it's, it's a fixed panorama format. It's not like a switchable. It only shoots in panorama mm-hmm. format on 35 millimeter film. So it, you know, it's cropping, it's right. essentially reverse half frame. It's horizontal right. half frame. Right. Right. Well, yeah. Got, so I picked up a, a Minox, uh, with like the last Minox, uh, point and shoot when they were owned by Leica. Uh, it does, huh. it does, well, it, does, it has the switch, but when you hit the switch, it changes the viewfinder to a panorama viewfinder. Really? Out of, my, out of Minox? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That. It's fantastic. That's cool. Huh. Yeah. Oh, very cool. I'll have to check that one out. There, it's, there was like never more than one at a time on eBay. Huh. <laughs> totally. And I got, I think I got it for $15. Wow. Uh, crazy. And it, is yeah. it the, is it the, um, uh, the traditional, Minox style? The, no, no, no. It's, it, it it's, looks like the it looks like the Leica point issued at the time. Okay, okay, gotcha. All right, yeah, gotcha. All right, yeah, cool. I gotta, I'll, I'll take a look for that one. Yeah. What's uh, what model is it? No, no, wait, no, sorry. Don't say we'll do this off air because okay. I don't want to <laughs> compete with all you some bitches looking for this camera. And after we've talked about it, so. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I, now I'm uh, now I'm snooping some more in, in 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 your collection while you guys are talking. Hey, and, and I realize you have, you have a like a ninety millimeter f four lens that looks really cool. Yeah, the Elmar. Oh, that's a neat lens. Yeah, and then the Hector's really right small. next to it's it. It's really small. Yeah, the other. yeah, that's a that's a super tiny lens, and oh my god, those things go for nothing. And I and I think I know. Because, yeah, and I I think because it's an f four, people are kind of discount it um but it's like boy talk about it I, I probably should get one of those but i just don't shoot that focal length really on rangefinder but i'm surprised that we don't see more images with that lens even in the like the facebook group because it's you can get them for under 100 bucks no problem and the hectares are great lens too yeah 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 for sure hectare, man. for me you know it, it is like the, the 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 hiking lens you know i it is it is what I put on to go because I live like I live on the edge of a like a forty thousand acre swamp, uh, national or state park. Uh, so like a lot of my work is 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 tromping around in the in the swamp, sort of documenting the the changes that are taking place with our little bit of climate change that we have going on down here in Florida. Uh, it's completely reshaping reshaping the landscape down here. Uh, uh, things that are underwater that have been underwater for the last year that have been dry for a hundred years. Uh, so the, the, it's, so that's, I, I love that for shooting outdoors. That 135 is a landscape lens. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've talked about that one a bit as well, uh, back on our 135 episode that, um, you know, going back to when Leica, uh, first sold that 135, that it's kind of like the German mountain hiking lens Yeah, <laughs> where you're, where you're, where, you know, you, you, um, you're shooting, uh, distant, landscape details right so you're sort of yeah so you're shooting instead of the instead of the vista idea of a landscape you're doing the um photo of details within the landscape yeah Uh, i I think uh, we had a conversation about that uh with a shot that i believe was 
Simons, um, where uh, it was looking across a um, kind of across a valley towards an in, like a, a power plant or something. You know what I'm talking about, Simon? There's it's a great the shot. The with the electrical poles in it. Yeah, right. That was, exactly. a, great, that was a great photo. Yeah, it's a great. I mean, the light the light was amazing, and the kind of the way the um, landscape proceeds. And there's there's kind of multiple. Uh, I, you know, I'm from Illinois. There are there are barely been any hills here. So when I when I see a landscape where there's like different heights of hills receding into the distance, I'm like, wow, that's so cool. No, it's cool. So, and Simon once in a while pulls off a shot that's just amazing. Yeah, I mean the light and, the light is like so fantastic. So though. there was a um there was someone posted a photo this week taken with a Jupiter 11, and it was a distant landscape shot. Do you remember it? Um, it was a water's oh, edge. Yeah, yeah, it was, ground, it, it, I think it was in Italy, I, I think. And I said to them, um, you know, I think maybe this is what the lens was originally designed for. I don't know if that's true or not, but we had talked about it. And the guy said, I never thought about that, but it makes a lot of sense. And the picture looked really nice. So, and the, you know, yeah. Oh, Johnny, I was just going to say that one thing that I haven't talked about that, you know, may be pertinent or not is that, you know, I also spent 10 years working as an underwater photographer and cinematographer. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, so, that's incredible. So when I, when I burned out of my PhD, uh, it just sort of everything this, you know, it's a difficult time to be in the liberal arts and sciences in the United States. And, uh, I, I totally burned out on my, my PhD, uh, which was looking at, at like Russian constructivist photography and Bauhaus and, 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 and again, again, with digital photography as well. Uh, and I, I ended up started, I started cave diving as a way to like get away from the pressures of grad school and ended up. Uh, working with a group of guys, uh, founding a company to make um, underwater lighting for cave exploration, and we ended up doing a, a you know a lot of really fascinating work designing HMI lights and HID lights for for deep ex underwater exploration, and then we started working with like we designed all of the the, the special dive gear used in the filming of, of, of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, and then we also worked with the, the TV show Alias. Uh, so I had to create a job for myself, and uh, you know, with my passion for photography, I became the uh, uh, sort of the media director of the company. And so my job was to uh, you know get on my dive gear, take my uh, Nikon D100 because this was uh, 2000, in 2001, and D100 was you know what I could work with. Uh, and then use a, a light and motion housing and then just go every day, take pictures, uh, testing different lighting systems and working on dive exploration projects. So I got to go around the world and this was like my last like foray of like using full automation because when you're uh, 300 feet deep with a, a housed camera, uh, wow. you want as much automation as you can use. Mm. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was kind of a, a, an interesting uh time we were also doing you know really high def uh video with the uh panasonic cameras and at the time they had those p2 cards I mean, and if you're going to do a dive that's going to be like a six hour dive to 300 feet uh you don't want to just be able to shoot 12 minutes of video and mm. so we actually designed uh underwater housings for firewire drives uh that could connect oh, wow. to the cameras <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of bonkers. Wow! Um, but we did a we we were involved with the project uh, uh, working with the state of Florida with the Department of Environmental Protection 
looking at the uh, degradation of the Florida spring systems. And so, oh. uh, you know, a lot of this was like trying to photograph these caves because most of these spring systems, especially in the last I mean, five years, have gone dark, meaning they, they, you know, they were crystal clear 15 years oh. ago, and now they've got five foot of visibility. Oh my God. I, you know, it's funny you say that. And I almost wonder if I've seen some of the work you've done, Anthony, because I, I remember seeing a, um, it was like a PBS special or something. And it was, it was all about exactly that. It was about yeah, the, the spring system and, and the caves. And it was crazy because they would be like, these guys would be, you know, going through the caves and then they would have somebody up on the surface, like standing where these people were. Yeah, you know, it was the it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, um, we, did, we did that. We, we would have we'd have transponders because they were like trying to. We we would help the the state uh, put uh, collection walls in to do water sampling, and wow. so you'd be, you'd be diving with a scooter with a transponder, and somebody on the surface would have like a, a like a, a radar ring, and they would follow on the surface, like cutting through the the the, the woods, following oh, you as you're, as you're two hundred feet below. Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We did that, and uh, then also did some work with like uh, uh, went to the uh, um, the GNC to the island of Chios in the uh, in the Greek islands, and we were uh, the third group to dive on the Britannic, which was the sister ship of the Titanic. Sure, uh, that yeah. went down in World War One. Um, it had been uh, requisitioned by the British Navy as a hospital ship, and it wow. had been yeah. kind of lost to the world for uh almost for, for like 40 years um there's fights over who owns it and uh Cousteau had been the first person to uh to to, to rediscover it but it's in 400 feet of water uh and it's in one of the busiest shipping lanes in the uh in the Aegean Sea and so you've got these like Russian super tankers who go right over the top of it makes mm. uh logistics very difficult um Wow. But, uh, I, I, but yeah, that was, you know, it's, it's so, it's such a different world. Cause that was like, you'd be, you know, I, you know, I had an Iconos and, you know, and I use it for like shooting sea lions and, you know, out in California. Yeah. Uh, but when it was like a critical job, you know, we had to use digital, you know, even though, yeah, you know, sure. even though we were film people, you know, the difference of, you know, you're setting up a dive that could take, you know, you know, dozens of peoples and uh, thousands of dollars to set up and, you know, you get one chance to get it. And of course you're going to take the camera where you can put a, you know, a massive memory card in it and take a, you know, 500 photos. Absolutely. I was, it's funny. You, you brought up the question that was on the tip of my tongue, which was about shooting the, the Nikonos cameras. Um, Cause they, they're really interesting and oh, yeah. but they, it, they, it, they seem they seem daunting to me um, in the fact that they're servicing them is, I don't even know how many places are left that will really service them correctly. Um, sure. But the, there's some really great lenses uh, on that system. And I have seen people use them for, you know, surface photography. Um, yeah. And I've, I've always been a little bit interested in that because I'm such a fan of the, um, the 35, uh, 2.5 Nikkor lens. Uh, mm -hmm. and it's a, it's essentially exactly the same lens that's in that, that Nikonos system. Well, um, you know, everything that we shot underwater, cause you know, like that's the other thing that's so difficult is like a real professional housing for, you know, DSLR is dauntingly expensive. Just like stupid, like a Subal housing, you know, it's like a small, it's like a, it's like a, a Honda Accord. <laughs> and uh and, and the funny thing is is that you know it, i felt so 
And I, I was friends with these guys, these these, these housing manufacturers, and it, it just it would drive them crazy because, you know, the, the the life cycle on these digital bodies is so short. And when you're when you're doing a, a a housed camera, you know, a button has to be in a specific place. And if they do like a like a a, a half revision upgrade of a body, and they and they move the function of one button to another location, your housing is useless. Right? Yeah. You can't modify uh, the housing to work with a different camera. So if you drop you know nine thousand dollars on a on a Subal housing for a DSLR, you're stuck with that body forever. <laughs> wow. Um, but yeah, we shot all we shot with big dome ports and we shot all super wide angle. Like most of the lenses were you know in the in the twelve to twenty four range. Mm. Um, so what you guys are talking, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not looking at cameras this time. I'm sitting here leaving through the Leica Manual by Morgan and Lester from like 1935. Isn't that great? And, and it's great. And the stuff that's in here is so relevant today. <laughs> I'm I like the, fact that the last third of the book is like how to photograph <laughs> like medical procedures. Yeah. Well, I've been reading traveling, <laughs> traveling with a Leica and, uh, your equipment should be simple with no useless gadgets. I like that one. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. the part about um, going out um, on a trip and making sure the camera is one that you're so used to that it's just natural to use it. As opposed mm -hmm. to somebody taking a bunch of, taking the latest cameras gear and uh, having not really used it very much. Yeah, that it's that's an interesting one too, uh, Carl. We 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 talk about that at the camera shop because people will people will come in that maybe haven't had a nice camera for for quite a while, and they're going to go on a trip and they want a new camera for travel, and then and you know, and they're literally like on their way to the airport, you know, and <laughs> so we're like, you know, we're like, well please read the manual while you're on the, on the flight be, because it's, it's difficult to just kind of, you know, throw a new camera into the mix and then go to like Africa and go on your safari and not really know the camera, you know? Um, so, so one of those things to, to, to think about ahead of time, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Johnny, I, I know that you're, you know, somewhat of a student of photography, um, have you ever been to the Pier 24 Museum in San Francisco? Uh, I have not, no. Have you heard about this? I've, I've, I've heard of it. I, 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 I think when I was there, I heard about it like as I was uh, like about to leave town or something. I've only been out there the – well, I've been out there twice. Uh, but I don't think I knew about it until um, the visit that I was there. And I it, basically I was just headed out before I heard about it. So. It's it's truly just it's it's amazing. It's one of the most amazing museums for photography in the world. Wow! And you know the story the story behind it had been that there was a a hedge fund manager whose wife was working as a docent at the San Francisco Museum of Art, and hmm. uh, he went to pick her up one day, and uh, they were doing a, a Diane Arbus exhibit, and he fell in love with the Diane Arbus photographs, and uh, basically you know called around until he found a. Uh, uh, a dealer that represented Diane Arbus and he like bought everything that they had. He bought like the, the portfolio and uh, that was the start of his passion for collecting. And uh, he ends up buying this abandoned pier that's under the bridge uh, to Oakland and uh, turning it into like the most insane photo specific museum in the world. And he runs this thing. You have to go online and make a reservation to, uh, 
to see the um, the museum, and they only allow in. I think it's like twenty five people at a time, wow. and it's free. But you have the you have the place to yourself, and uh, there's no uh, there, the the rooms are identified by number on the floor, but the, there's no information on the the photos themselves. They just stand by themselves, and they have docents that sort of like lurk in the corner. And if you look at a camera, and if you have or look at a, at a photo and you have a question, uh, the docent will come over and give you the story of the photography of the, what you're looking at. Wow, that's great. Huh, I, gotta, I, I hope, hope to see that sometime. It's, uh, if you're interested in photography and you're in the United States, um, it's a truly, it's a unique opportunity. The last show that I saw there was a, a collection of collectors. And he'd gone through and, and approached like, like, 10 different collectors and that specified that they, they work on very specific types of photography and asked them to assemble like a, like a mini show of what was their obsession with collecting photographs. Uh, so there was the guy from San Francisco that collected rock and roll photographs. And it was everything from like Richard Avendon to, you know, uh, the Irving Penn photos, everything from the, the, the 1950s through the you know, 2000s. And then the, you turn the corner and it was all uh, women photographers from the 1930s. And you turn the corner and it was all like large scale photographs. And uh, there's just, there's, I can't think of another museum in the world that gives you this experience of like, with the, with, you know, this focus on photography. And it's totally quirky. I, w I want to just go back a little bit to something that uh, Johnny said earlier about, uh, I, I can't remember the exact words that he said, but it was something on the lines of it being pointless putting larger format lenses on uh, um, smaller format cameras. And to, to, to a degree, I've got some sympathy with that view. But um, in particular, though, we were talking about medium format uh, lenses and how they uh, don't have to work so hard uh, to produce an image because the, the the film that they work with is so much larger than yeah. uh, than than thirty five mil or, or or full frame, um, and it just immediately made me think about my experience of using uh, medium format lenses on on my Sony, and and it's been quite mixed. In in many cases, it's been a case of yeah, it's been lar largely pointless uh, because I'm just putting something of a of a focal length that I've already got, except it's much heavier. Um, and you know, just, just generally less easy to use, and it, and it didn't actually give me anything um, particularly special, and it wasn't particularly sharp. And I'm actually the lens I'm talking about there is actually the uh, the Carl Zeiss uh, 80 millimeter f 2.8 for Hasselblad, um, which you would think, wow, that should be brilliant. Well, yeah, it was nice, but it just it just didn't seem to be worth the effort. Um, whereas I've used uh, a couple of Bronica lenses for the um, uh, for the ETR system, which is a uh, six four five uh, camera, so it's a, it's a smaller format than, say, for, for Hasselblad. Um, but the I've used the seventy five two point eight Zenzenon and the uh, one fifty three point five. And when I say the, I've just remembered there are actually different versions of those with exactly the same la uh, name, but you get MCs and you get PEs and all this kind of stuff. And uh, and I think the two that I used were were, were the higher rated ones or at least uh, respected ones and i've i've used those to great effect um i mean i don't i think i've still got one of the lenses and i probably won't use it because it's just a it's just big but in terms of uh, resolving power they've both been excellent so mm. I, I think it's 
as much a case of it depends upon the lens and i think some lenses just they 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 are better than others when you when you're talking about uh um using on on a smaller sensor and just their general overall sharpness i will say that i've, I've used the range of, of pentax 645 lenses on my k1 and i was very satisfied with the results that i got off of that well, that's and that that goes along with what I was just saying there about these these Bronicas because uh, the Bronica lenses because it's the same smaller than six by six format. So perhaps in the same way as we've been saying about uh, half frame lenses, um, are they they're just they're, they're generally very very sharp. The same is absolutely yeah. true of Olympus Micro Four Thirds lenses. I I don't think there are any lenses that are sharper than. Micro Four Thirds lenses, and the argument is going to be that well, they've got to be because they've been used on the smaller sensor, and, and six four five is at the small end of medium format. Yeah, see, I, I see. I think six four five is kind of a magical format <laughs> in this in the same way that I think half frame thirty five millimeter is a magical format. Now, interestingly, um, they both share. I think essentially exactly the same aspect ratio, which is maybe not accidental also why we tend to like photos from those systems because they're, um, they're, a, uh, they're basically a golden ratio, right? Uh, format. Um, so I, I do think that makes a difference as well. Um, and, and the, the lenses are built to resolve a, a different image circle, right? Uh, so I, I, I do think there's something to that. I think those are both really interesting formats and, you know, the lenses built for those systems, um, they do tend to seem to be kind of exceptional performers. I think if I was one of those people looking afford a uh, Fuji medium format camera, which I, th I think I'd be heading for 645 lenses for exactly that reason. Yeah. That's why you don't want to be dropping six, four, five cameras. You know, <laughs> they're real gems, uh -huh. <laughs> but they're real slippery if they don't have a strap on them. Well, if this you one, put a strap on one, the bottom, this they one, just this fall. one was. It was, yeah. Well, you know, in a, in, a, in a similar fashion to what you're talking about, you know, I know if, if any of you all have shot with like the Minox sub miniatures, um, you know, the takes some getting used to. It's a, it's a different style of photography. You know, you look at this lens and you're thinking, how could this possibly have any resolving power at all? And yet you use that chain and you take a photograph at eight inches and you can read every letter of, of seven point text on a, on yeah. a page. Right. You know, I mean, you know, they were designed for that, you know, that that use of, of, of you know, even though it's just like an incredibly small negative and incredibly you know, tiny lens, you know, you find that sweet spot for what that lens is good for. And you know, I, you couldn't get a better resolution on it on taking a photograph of a document. Mm -hmm. You know, and that sort of, I, you know, I'd been so disappointed with my Minox cameras because I kept on trying to shoot them like a thirty-five millimeter camera, and if something's even you know ten feet away, it's useless. You know, they just they just they they they're yeah. just kind of blurry <laughs> and mucky and and but you know I started like doing it using them for like close up portraits. You know, like start using the Minox to take portraits of you know people that are you know eight to twenty inches away, and you mm -hmm. get fantastic results. So are you talking about the 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 true sub miniature? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. You're talking yeah. about the thirty five millimeter uh, camera. No, no, no. I mean, I love my Minox thirty fives, but now I'm talking about the sub miniature. Yeah. You know, it just you have to rethink what you just you can't shoehorn it into being a thirty-five millimeter camera. It never will be. 
Well, when you, whenever you see them advertised, he's usually accompanied by the words uh, "words spy camera." So, right. So yeah, it, it only adds to the uh, to to the mythology of that camera. Uh, really, when you're yeah. saying that it takes good pictures of things that are very close. Oh, I mean, it's it's uncanny. I mean, I, I was, I, you know, I ran a world just testing, just taking pictures of, of pages of books, and it's as it's 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 even more clear than like a Xerox copy. Is that what you have here in your um in your library next to the Minox? These little uh, leather cases of those other spy yeah, cameras? Yeah, yeah. If you open those up, there's a uh, there's like three subminiatures up there. Different ones, yeah. Yeah. I also started developing that at home. That's kind of a trip, you know. The the oh, Minox wow. the, the Minox <laughs> developing tank takes uh I think it's a a quarter cup of developer. Oh, <laughs> Does um, is it one of those like daylight load tanks? Yes, it the is? spiral load. So you, okay. you, you it's got a, it's it's all bakelite, and uh, you you spiral it out, and you take the the entire cartridge, you pull the end out, and you clip it in, and then you you screw the cartridge inside the canister, and as you screw the top down, and un uh, unspools the film into that raised ridge. Oh, cool! And spirals all the way down, and then when you put the uh, the developer in the center, it's not even a quarter cup. It's like an eighth of, it's like just a few tablespoons of developer. And it goes inside <laughs> that track and it spirals down the track. And you develop it just like standard. I've done both color and black and white. Uh, oh, wow. That's great. And it's, and, and, and then I use a, just like a, an Epson V500 to scan them. And oh, cool. uh, phenomenal results. So how you, how you getting on with getting film for that? I mean, it's just complete coincidence i've got a couple of rolls of the, of the film that you would use in that on on my ebay shop at the moment but have you are you able to actually buy that new or are you or do you have to buy expired film for it now no there's a there's a place in the u.s called blue moon that is working with the minox corporation which you know still exists making like gun sites and binoculars uh but they work with uh, minox to be the official uh licensed producer of 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 subminiature film uh, it's expensive. It's 20 bucks a roll, but I mean, it's cheaper. I mean, that, but you get like 36 exposures. So per exposure, it's you know, cheaper than, you know, 120 film. Well, I was going to say, you say, say it's expensive, but I've just realized I've got, I've got my expired stuff on for probably around about the same price. And I wonder yeah. why it's not selling <laughs> because you can buy new for the same price. I may have to revise uh, my pricing there on those items. <laughs> and then I got lucky and found, uh, I found somebody who had, uh, an entire case of, of 1980s black and white, which is, I believe it's, 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 uh, Agfa, um, pro, uh, pan, pan pro. Uh, so about like an entire case for about $2 a roll. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I got plenty of Minox film. <laughs> What's the film that you have that you, um, recently told me about where you have a really long roll of film because you, you put some on a, on a cartridge for me. Well, I can't remember what oh, I got the, I got the the Orvo in uh, Orvo in seventy four. Okay, right, but that was in a camera that you let me borrow, and then I didn't shoot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. This one. Yeah, I've been I've been doing Carl's developing for him. <laughs> yeah, we we've we've been trying to get Carl to uh, learn how to do developing for yeah, as long he as just we can remember. Stubbornly refuses. Yeah. yeah try try to get him into the Kavanaugh workshop, but you know, he's he's a busy guy. <laughs> oh my uh anthony you mentioned uh blue moon uh which i have i've bought from them as well they seem to be um good folks and i know that they're doing some yeah and they're doing some film distribution and stuff um but i wanted to i mean you know 
essentially uh, to ask kind of an industry question, I guess, uh, since you, I, I think you would say you, you, to some degree, you would consider yourself a photography retailer, I would think. Yeah. Um, yes. Cause you, right. Cause you're selling film and maybe other things that we haven't even discussed yet, but, um, I, I find that really, I, I it, it's very heartening <laughs> at, at this point in time, even to just find, uh, people that are, uh, selling, film on a new basis as in you you just started doing it rather than it's something you've you've been doing um because there you know there there are there are so many fewer camera shops and you talked about camera shops locally closing um and there have been a a few really cool notable examples of new camera shops opening i think of um uh, oh what's the name of it the one in seattle i've talked to the 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 guy up there he's really great yeah, shot on film story. Uh, yeah, he's, I, actually, he's, I actually went out and visited them. They're fantastic. Did you really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I bought a bunch That's... of uh, I bought a bunch of Astrum, and then a bunch. I bought a bunch of uh, expired Agfa film there. Oh, that's great. Well, he, yeah. I mean, but that that's to me, it's really encouraging to see someone who is opening, you know, opening a camera store rather than being at one that's closing. Right. Um, it was a bustling little you, store too. It was, it was a yeah, good, yeah. Good he seems to be doing really well. And, yeah. and I was thinking the same about what you just said. Is that you're in a you're in a physical location where you have, you know, a, a large enough population of people who are interested in things like photography that no longer have access to any sort of a local. Um, a local store where they can wa- just walk in and buy some film or buy whatever, you know, to, talk, just talk to someone in person about photography and what they're doing. And I, I mean, if it's a fair question, I'm just wondering what your, your plans are personally for, you know, where you think that might go and how it's been going for you. And um, just, yeah, I guess a little bit more about, you know, what, what your motivations are, if it's just pure love of the, of, of photography or, or, where you think it might be headed? Well, I mean, you know, I, my shop has always been a place that, that is like, you know, I said, it's a, it's a cultural spot as much as a food spot. And, uh, you know, to be able to offer something that, that like helps feed the artistic community is, is, you know, you got to feed them, you got to feed them coffee, you got to feed them a scone occasionally, and you got to feed them some black and white film. And so, you know, I don't think that, you know, Kodak or Ilford are interested in, you know, we aren't doing like a, you know, high volume because, you know, ultimately we are a shop, a coffee shop or espresso bar. But uh, I'm working uh, with Andre over at Cine still, and uh, they're a bit overextended with how many people they've opened up. And, and as soon as they have uh, a surplus of, of inventory, we're going to start carrying uh, Cine still, both 35 and 120. And we'll probably start carrying the, uh, uh, the dry film kit, the developing kits now that they're doing them uh, dry. Um, and, you know, I've actually had, uh, I've had a lot of interest in me starting to rent cameras. Ah, and I've, I've got all of these cameras now. And I mean, I can only shoot so many cameras uh, and, you know, and I've got some that are, you know, pretty robust, you know, these cameras were designed to be shot. You know, I don't want, you know, I don't buy them just like, look at them, you know, I want them to be used. And so I'm trying to figure out which cameras uh, I'm going to like put into rotation where people can, you know, rent a camera and buy a roll of film and like have a camera for a weekend. Uh, and so that's, 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 that's my plan for this year. Wow. That, that's, that's wonderful to hear. That's super cool. I'm already, I'm already on the black, I'm already on the blacklist. I'm not allowed to rent. <laughs> <laughs> 
But, just you just have to work work out an insurance thing where you know people have to leave a deposit or something. <laughs> well, I've been so lucky at finding these cameras for such because I mean you know I mean I hate to, I hate to sound morbid but you know we're in Florida and you know we got a lot of people that are you know, like hitting their 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 seventies eighties and nineties and their families have their cameras they're never going to shoot them again and yeah. you know these these and and you know I mean I mean I. I, I I'm almost embarrassed to say that I got my my M3 kit uh, with a, an M3 that hadn't been shot. I mean, it also had a roll of film in it from the 1960s, and uh, wow. it came it came with the uh, uh, the 51.5. Is it Elmeret? Uh, yep. Yeah. And uh, it, Sumer, Sumerit. 51.5 yeah. Sumerit. Yeah. Yeah. And th- and then it came it came with that, and then it came with the Elmar, and then it came with the uh, Hector with the mm. original case from from Munich from 1955. Uh, and it was five hundred dollars. Was it uh, what kind of condition? Oh was the camera God. workable, or did it's, you? Get it's it in mint condition. It's it's in mint condition. But is it functionally? It's good too. Or I, I have shot twenty rolls of film through it. Wow, that's great! What a great uh, find. I mean, it, it's up at it's up at Dag right now, being CLA'd. Ah, perfect. Uh, but that's it's great. Um, it'll go. It'll go forever. <laughs> but you, you looked at that camera, and, and it was it was brand new. And the same with that that Super A. And, you know, and I've just found one camera after another where, you know, I'm, I'm finding these cameras for like a hundred dollars, $50. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it, that's, that's, that's great. And that's what I mean sort of about you're in a, you, you, I feel like there's probably pockets of this. Well, probably everywhere, but certainly in the U S where you're, you're in a, a geographic location where there's just enough surrounding population. There's probably a, a, a supply of cameras sitting unused. Absolutely, and that's, that's sort of what I I felt about uh, the guy up in Seattle, the um, shot on film store. Is that and, and this this didn't really occur to me until um, the episode we did with uh, Mike Ekman and Bob Rodoloni. And Bob mm-hmm. mentioned that Seattle um, was a a big embarkation point for you know guys coming back, people coming back from. Uh, Japan and Asia, sure, of course. right? From all the countless wars that we've been fighting there forever, um, and and it makes it hadn't occurred to me, but it makes a lot of sense that there, are, the the shot on film store guy. I'm like, dude, where are you finding all these damn cameras? Because that guy has so much inventory coming in, and I think it's probably because there's just a lot of cameras out there. Um, be, it, it, because so much of that stuff probably got brought back, and then. You know, if it didn't get taken home, maybe it got sold off locally before people headed home because they needed the money. Who knows? But it, it seems like there are pockets of uh, places where maybe there's a, for whatever reason, there happens to be a lot of, you know, camera gear. And I think maybe you you have a situation like that because you have so many people retiring Absolutely. down in Florida that have had this stuff forever. And you know, so it's it's kind of fascinating how location. Um, I think works in favor of uh, having access to really great collectible cameras and lenses and stuff. It's just like I picked up a, uh, I picked up a a Bustler Topcon Super D uh, for for $60. Wow. Nice. It was a, it was a guy who had been, uh, I think he said he was a pastor at, at Pearl Harbor and he brought it back from Hawaii in the 1960s. And it was just, you know, he was this really nice guy who was a retiree living on one of the Gulf uh, islands off, uh, outside of St. Petersburg. And 
he's like, take care of my camera. (laughs) 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 And, uh, I actually, I found a guy up in uh, Michigan who was uh, a repair guy who had been, um, he worked for a Topcon dealer in the 60s, and when they stopped carrying Topcon, uh, they let him keep all of the parts. Um, and he completely has rebuilt the camera from the ground up. Um, it's like every wow. replaceable part is, is new old stock. No kidding. Jeez. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, it, it was, uh, I mean, it was pricey. I mean, it was like $180, but uh, the camera, he said it's like it came off the showroom, you know? No. So, but you, but you can find those here. You know, it's like the guy had you know brought that camera back from when he was in the Navy, and it had just been sitting there for yeah. Ever. Yeah, I think that's a really that's a really common story. I we um we get you know we get cameras that come into the shop that that's probably the most common way that we get um, especially uh, Leicas uh, is that they it's usually the you know children adult children who are pretty, uh, you know, on in years themselves, um, whose parent or parents were in Japan or Germany and, and brought things home. And they've had like this complete set of things that were brought home, you know, in the the fifties. Um, and sometimes they're in pretty rough shape, unfortunately, but we do, we do get a little, that's typically where our Leica kits come from when we get them. Yeah. Um, is that they are they're exa- that's exactly the profile of of people who who are kind of sitting on them um and interestingly i you know i give a lot of credit to uh younger people who are d- getting into film photography especially photography period but especially film photography is that they they're the ones who are sort of passionate about it and it tends to be older folks who think that film literally does not exist anymore like right, they right. They saw it disappear and when the kind of advent of digital and they literally think there is no such thing as film anymore. And so they, you know, they, they, they tend to not need the gear anyway, but think that it's, it's not even in any way usable, you know? Right. Oh uh, yeah. So like if, if last year was like, you know, it was kind of like a, a race to, uh, uh, to buy as many of these cameras as I could, because I, I kind of felt like camera rescue, you know, it's like, you know, yeah get them before they're trashed. Now it's kind of like a race to get them repaired and CLA'd, you know, figure out which ones I really want to shoot and taking the time and money instead of acquiring lots of new cameras. Uh, Cause I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I had my, my MX completely overhauled. I had the, I sent an OM one that I picked up for, I think $20 uh, uh, up to New Jersey to have it completely redone. Um, and these cameras are like new now. I mean, it's just, they're just spectacular. Uh, but the people that are repairing them, they're not going to be doing this forever. Yeah, you know, I think that the the lenses will. And this is what I like about you know the use of, of vintage lenses is you know they have a much longer shelf life than these cameras have, um, and it's just going to be a shame when we when we lose these uh, the ability to keep these cameras running. And I think it's going to happen. You know, in the next twenty years, we're going to have a hard time with these cameras, uh, which is is very unfortunate. So I'm I'm trying to to do as much as I can now to keep the the, the really interesting specimens you know in top shape. I, yeah, I think about that a lot too. Cause I have, um, I have a few, a few cameras that I really like to, to have fixed. It's just, you know, affording it, but I know it's, it's the same sort of thing. I mean, I, I have, I have a Roloflex, um, 3.5 uh, F that I picked up 
Oh, yeah. forever ago. I mean, probably year 2000. And I got it for $50 in an antique shop. And it, it's it's just a beautiful camera. Um, but the slow speeds are sticking. It was that way when I got it. And I'm like, oh, I'll get it serviced. And it, here we go 18 years later. And I've never had it serviced. Uh, and I've just kind of been been sitting on it. But it's one of those cameras that just deserves to be invested in because it will it will run forever, um, you know, if it's serviced. But the, the guys who do that work are you know, fewer and far between. So I, I, um, I, I think I've talked about the, uh, my latest Rolleiflex find I, I, every 20 years or so I stumble upon a Rolleiflex and I, um, I earlier, like, what was it last year, late last year, I, I stumbled upon a, um, a Rolleiflex 2.8 a, and it had, you know, it had problems. The shutter was locked up and I happened to meet, uh, late was it last year, uh, Jimmy Coe, of Coe's camera up in uh, mm -hmm. New York. He actually came in a central camera and um, he was chatting with the owner and the owner's like, Oh, Johnny, this is Jimmy Coe. I'm like, I almost lost it because I mean, I'm, you know, the guy's famous in the Rolly world <laughs> uh, as a, a service guy. And I, you know, so I was like, no way, Jimmy Coe was like being a celebrity, you know? So, so I, I had a nice chat with Jimmy who is the nicest guy, by the way, he's a really, really wonderful guy. And he's been selling this stuff and doing, uh, really service work forever. He's, he also, um, does Bronica work. Well, I should say he used to, he's officially sort of retired from repair, but he still sells, uh, things through his shop that he repairs. Mm -hmm. uh, but he said he would, he would work on my 2.8 a and, and, and got it running. And it's just, it's, it's running, uh, fantastic right now, which I'm really thrilled about, but I, I need to see if I can twist his arm to, to work on that Rolly uh, 3.5. Cause it, it's a camera that just, it needs to be uh, working for the benefit of humanity, <laughs> whether I have it or somebody right. else has it, you know, and, and, and it, it is sort of a situation where I, I do worry about that as well. Um, you know, and kind of going back to our, our conversation about, you know, pump camera and what's the future of, um, you know, cam cameras that can shoot, maybe digital and film and mm -hmm. how that stuff keeps going over, over the long haul and the next, you know, coming generations when a lot of the, the, the knowledge base of people who've been repairing them for so long is, you know, we're, we're going to lose that at some point. So, well, you know, I mean, when I was doing my underwater work, the, the company that we founded was called Halcyon. And we were you know, truly like an integrated manufacturing company where, you know, we, uh, we bought the the, the HMI and HID uh, lighting elements from Walsh Allen, but then we manufactured everything in house in Florida, and wow. we had our and we also did rebreathers and we have uh, you know buoyancy compensators and it's a full line of dive gear and we have a factory with like you know forty employees making this stuff uh, and there are certain things like you know we wanted like a special cloth for making uh, the outer shells of of some buoyancy wings and you realize that the manufacturing capability in the United States doesn't even exist anymore. Like even if we wanted to buy that fabric from the United States, the, 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 the looms and the, and the weaving technology just doesn't exist. And, uh, uh, you know, everything's being simplified and, 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 you know, working with some of the Chinese manufacturers, like we did, like our stuff's about 95% made in the U S but that other 5%, it's not made in the U S because that, that knowledge of how to make that thing doesn't exist anymore. And I think that that's yeah. the problem these, these camera companies are coming up to is, 
you know, you look at the insides of these cameras, nobody knows how to make that. Yeah. Nobody can machine that anymore. You know, mm-hmm. it just doesn't, that, that sort of, you know, the, the shutter technology, I feel for those guys at reflex because, you know, you just, you can't call up Copal anymore and just say, give me a shutter. Yeah, that that stuff's been mothballed and taken apart. And, you know, I don't know how anybody could get back to that point. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody could ever manufacture like one of these Voigtlander cameras from the 50s again. No, no way. (laughs) Not a chance. You know, that that technology is just that ship sailed. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's, you know, that's why I I do wish all all those projects well, but I, I, I don't. I don't want to give the reflex thing a hard time, but I just, yeah. I, I, I do worry a little bit that, that, uh, building shutters is not the right necessarily path to go down. <laughs> so, you know, I don't it, know. I don't know. It, it, it's so going to take see. like, it's going to take like a Paul Allen or a, a Jim Cameron or somebody with just like, you know, here's $50 million. I want to see this yeah, in my lifetime. Right. I know it's 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 almost like we need to get all the celebrities in the world together who are super passionate about photography and just be like, look, you need you guys all need to pitch in a little bit here, and then this can happen, you know? Because <laughs> it's not going to happen just on a Kickstarter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. a Kardashian camera. That's what it's. Gonna yeah, be. right. Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, just just some, something on on the the reflex side of the things, and uh, I, I know that uh, Johnny's got his. Um, doubts about the the method that they they're going down in terms of uh, manufacturing their own shutter. Well, I was I was reading what they 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 said on Kickstarter a couple of days ago, and it appears it's pretty much the only option they have left open to them. So um, I mean, if, well, that, if that's, I, if that's uh, the only way, then you know. Hopefully but I don't see. Yeah, but I think that they're that that's I I think that that's maybe they think that's the only way. That's kind of what I'm saying. Is I I think they maybe that's what I appreciate about the conversation we had about pomp is they were they're thinking about it outside the box a little bit more and i and and i think perhaps that's what it takes rather than just going to the conclusion that oh we'll just make it ourselves you know so i i i get i get it i just that, that's what i mean i i think it's it mm, it's problematic yeah, I, yeah. I, I would say i would take the view that they've they've had the time to look into this and the, and the other options and you know they've they're probably in a, a a better position to say that actually we have explored everything and that's why we're not going to do that anymore. That's that's my gut feeling there really. Well, I, I certainly hope it works. You know, I'm I'm, I'm certainly rooting for them. Yeah, you know, we need we need those. And I was just talking to Carl about it before the show that you know I think that there, there's a lot that's innovative about their design that I you know it's just like it's going to be really cool if it happens. Uh, but phew, man, what a what a tough road they've they've mapped out for themselves. Yeah. So. Well, let's uh, fingers crossed for ref- reflex and fingers crossed yeah, for pomp. Um, and I think uh, we'll we'll probably start to wind wind things down a little bit. That's now. fine. Um, Anthony, it's been great chatting to you. You've got some really interesting stories there, and uh, and you've given us plenty of uh, food for thought. So um, I hope you've enjoyed. Uh, oh, absolutely! I hope that I hope it will be of interest to uh, to your listeners. That's it, and I, and I hope when you go back into the room where all the cameras are, that uh, there aren't there aren't too <laughs> many spaces. Right. Well, uh, before before we finish, I'll 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 come back to you, Anthony, to uh, let you give out any uh, shout outs and links and things. Uh, but before that, we'll uh, we'll go through the uh, the, the three of us um, and. I'll go first, and uh, I just want to uh, 
firstly, just talk about our donations that we've had this week. And actually, just as a um, side thought, actually, that um, uh, Sunday 16 uh, podcast has, has just started to do coffee donations. And, uh, and that's gone down extremely well. Um, I think they're now uh, 43rd... Um, largest economy in the world i think or something like that uh, due to their uh, their coffee donations and uh um and we've had two this week <laughs> and uh so uh, i just want to say thank you to annual mystery um who uh has donated to us and it says keep it up guys and uh and he's given us three kisses by the looks of it. Um, so, so uh, I think that's what those three X's are for. So uh, we love you too, Anil. Um, and, uh, and also Steve New uh, donated to us as well, uh, saying, keep it up, guys. You're doing fine. Um, so um, thank you both. And also thank you to uh, uh, Lawrence and James, our uh, regular do donators as well. So um, it's really appreciated. And, well, thank you very much on that one. Um, and then just a couple of other things um i just want to say that on the 3rd of march which is two weeks away as we're recording on this sunday uh, the podcast goes out tomorrow um and uh, so 3rd of march the wolverhampton camera fair will be back on um so i will have a table and a half there selling some lenses and stuff um so if anybody's around in the uk in the midlands of the uk um the wants to come along and uh, drool over uh, a room full of lenses and old cameras then it's a great thing to come uh, come to have a look at uh, all you need to do is just google it for uh, wolverhampton camera fair uh, and you'll get all the details there um and uh, one last thing there's a, a meetup which i've mentioned before at the photography show on the 16th of march uh, this is organized by hamish gill and uh, the Sunday 16 podcast. Uh, so there's quite a few people getting, getting together there. I'm going to be there as well. So um, yeah, it's it's great to it's great to meet people. So uh, hopefully that's two places I might bump into a few listeners. Um, so that's it for my shout outs. Uh, Johnny, how about yourself? Um, yeah, I have uh, a couple of shout outs. Um, I talked on the phone this week with uh, Ray D, who is in upstate New York. Uh, and he was actually in the in the shop, and I, I I didn't get to meet him. I think he was must have been in on a Monday. Uh, so I was just gonna say, folks, I'm not at Central Camera on Monday, and we are closed on Sunday. So um, I will not see you there if that's the day that you happen to visit. Um, but Ray Ray called up and he had some questions about uh, LTM lenses because Ray is a proud member of the Canon P Army. Uh, he has a <laughs> he has acquired a Canon P and um is is looking around for some lenses so we talked about ltm lenses and had a nice conversation and that was pretty cool um and the other shout i wanted to give um i guess it's just kind of a a, a personal one uh is I, I in my photographic week here i um on friday uh stopped by the uh, ken josephson exhibit at stephen dater gallery here in chicago which is a a really famous uh, gallery that specializes in, um, I guess we would call it classic uh, photography and photographers of the 20th century. And um, Ken was my, 
uh, one of my most influential professors in in college, um, especially, you know, I took his classes in large format and pinhole photography and had a huge influence on on me to this day and actually got to uh, see him there at the at the show. So if you're in Chicago, I would say check out um, the Ken Josephson show at Stephen Dater Gallery. It's all about his square format work, actually. So talking about how format changes things, it's all square photography. And I, I had never seen any of this work because Ken famously never really showed his own work as a uh, as a teacher when you were in his classes. He he talked about other people's work but never showed his own really. He had to kind of seek it out. But I, I had never seen any of this medium format work and I don't even know if he really ever put it out there much. So, uh, so if you're local in the area, I would highly recommend uh, checking out Ken's work. It's really, really amazing stuff. So that, that, that be my shout outs. Okay. And, uh, Carl, have you got any shout outs this week? Yeah. So I'll do a shout out to two of our photography with classic lens, Facebook group members. And, uh, one of them is our, our good friend, Geza singer who we've had on as a guest before. And everyone knows Geza is a longtime photographer film back from the, you know, early in the film era. And, and still shooting a lot of film, but um, <laughs> but not, not, quite I think the, he's, not quite the Collodian I, era. So it's not, not but he, quite, but he um, is a huge contributor to um, the page, and, and I think probably every day goes for a walk and takes photos. And I think he's the first person that's posted any pictures with a Z6 on the page, and it looks good. And then uh, to Svetlana, who we also had on um, as a guest, and um, she's starting to shoot film. And, and she's got a post today that she just shot her second roll of film um, ever on a real camera. And it's, she has a Bessa T. Yeah. So she's shooting that. And that'll be cool to see how that turns out. Certainly will. Certainly will. Um, so, um, Anthony, um, again, yes. thank you for uh, being with us. And uh, are there any, any, uh, any shout-outs you might want to give? Or would you like to... Give, let people have some details of uh, your your cafe and anything where they perhaps you can see your photography or anything else you're you're involved in. Sure. Well, I guess a shout out to Stephen Dowling for introducing 120 Cosmo Film. Uh, we're really excited to finally be able to carry that in the shop as well. Um, it's Volta Coffee, Tea, and Chocolate here in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, and if you want to find me on Instagram, uh, this is an odd story, but Chloe Kardashian stole my username. Uh, which was true uh, <laughs> because my last name is Rue. My first name had been Anthony going back to the 1980s. My uh, email address had always been true because a cranky systems administrator insisted on using my first initial of my name, uh, first name and my last name. And when he, he goes, anybody call you Tony? And I said, well, my mom does. And he goes, true. I like that. It makes a word. Uh, so true. had always been my email address. And I was true at Instagram. And, um, you like Eastern European hackers uh, <laughs> got into my Instagram account, stole my username, and sold it to Chloe Kardashian. When <laughs> they had a, uh, a, a she had her, I guess, her daughter's name is True, and they wanted the oh name. <laughs> so Chloe Kardashian <laughs> stole my username. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to come up with a, with a I had a placeholder name, which was Kino underscore Pravda, uh, or Camera Truth in Russian. Uh, and it was just supposed to be a space holder until I got my name back. But uh, uh, I guess Facebook likes uh, Chloe Kardashian more than they like me because uh, she kept my name. <laughs> well, well let's, let's hope that the Kardashians give, give something back and invest in the uh, reflex. Yeah, of the exactly. 
I know. <laughs> so yeah, so Kino underscore Pravda on Instagram. And then on Flickr, I've been on Flickr forever. It's uh it was actually my old design company, which is Design Design, D-A-S-E-I-N-D-E-S-I-G-N. Uh and so all my I pretty much as I test new cameras every day. Uh, I just have a constant rolling uh, like directory for each camera that I'm shooting with and all of the photos from that camera to just, you know, keep a, 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 a segregated index of all my work. Uh, so you can actually look by camera uh, at, cool. at everything up there. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you again. Uh, Johnny, um, perhaps you can let people know how people can keep up with you. Uh, yeah, you find me uh, on Instagram at, at System Photography. I will be posting this week. I'm getting caught up. Uh, I have a, kind of a, some projects I've been working on. Uh, you can find me most days at Kardashian Camera Company in Chicago. Uh, they were closed on Sunday, but we and I'm not there on Monday. But you can you can meet me there other days, and I look forward to talking with you there. Um, and you can. Send us an email at uh, central or don't at no, it's not, not that one. Uh, you can send us an email at uh, classic lenses podcast at gmail.com. Um, you can uh, sort of connect with us on uh, Instagram, or you should be connecting with, uh, with Instagram at um, best vintage lens, and you can use that hashtag to be featured there. Uh, and they do good stuff and thank you very much to them um, and um, I don't know do we have any other things that I'm forgetting to mention no no you've oh, remembered yeah. the two things you forget yeah cool and and um, just did not to let the cat out of the bag but there the we are imminently approaching the uh, official launch of um, the uh, classic lenses podcast website cool. so that's yeah. that's coming soon we haven't talked about it till now but it's coming soon we've, we, we've been hinting at things to come uh, yeah this has been yeah. a big uh, uh, the, the, the reason we've been able to do this has been with the coffee donations so yeah uh, which I yep. didn't actually mention they, how people can do that and that's uh, there's a website called coffee and it's ko-fi.com if you go to that website and do a search for classic lenses podcast you can see our page and uh, and that's how we're, we're starting to be able to do extra things so um, again thank you for all those people who contributed to us and uh, and a, a thank you to anybody else that's, that's going to do so in the future um, so uh, Carl how can people keep up with you well on the photography with the classic lenses Facebook group and on Instagram just by my name Carl underscore Havens and uh, no one has tried to steal that and I don't think they will and then on, uh, on Flickr it's also just my name but with no, no underscore Okay, and uh, I'm on Instagram as uh, Simon Forster Photographic, and I also uh, post a little bit about the podcast on there, um, on Flickr, although I haven't been able to put anything on Flickr for about six weeks because I'm over the limit and I haven't paid my money, uh, but you can find me on there. Um, I think I'm on there as It's Fozzy, which is also the way that I have myself out on eBay. Um, I also have a website, uh, which is simonforsterphotographic.com. And uh, you can find the, the three of us, actually four of us, uh, because Anthony is in the, in our group as well. So that's the Facebook group, Photography with Classic Lenses. Uh, we're all in there. And uh, I also drop a, a post into mflenses.com uh, in the forums in there. So there's a, there's a post you can uh, drop us a line in there as well. So finally, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this week's podcast. And it'll be great if you can join us all again next week. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.
All right. Well, let's uh, let's just have a, a a quick run through. Then we can just sort ourselves out, and then we can, we can, we can get going. Um, yeah. uh, today's show is all about Anthony, and um, so uh, and it's going to be slightly different from how we've done things before uh, because well, it would have been different, but it, it's it's well, it's sort of different, but not anymore now because uh, uh, Johnny, you, you won't realise this, but. Um, Anthony was in the same room as Carl, uh, but he's now had to leave the room. Uh, wow! Yeah, echo. Yeah, yeah. It's nothing, nothing to do with Carl's diet or anything like that. Um, <laughs> and... You can fix it in post. Exactly. Yeah, or he, or, or he leaves it in if it makes one of us look bad. <laughs> 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 yeah, we tend not to make the guests look bad though. Just, just you guys. <laughs> <laughs>